Hey Changemaker, welcome back. I just want you to know that I'm so incredibly grateful. I'm so, so grateful to be able to produce this podcast for you and for myself. I learn so much from every single conversation and most importantly, my sense of connection and solidarity is strengthened during a time when it is so desperately needed. And it is sincerely my hope that this podcast will do the same for you. Your ideas, thoughts, and input are welcomed. So if you have a question to ask me or a comment from a conversation on the podcast, please leave a voice message and join the podcast. You can do that at girlsglobe.org changemaker where you can record a short piece of audio to share your opinions and thoughts. If you'd rather leave a comment under an episode, you can do that on Girls Globe as well, girlsglobe.org changemaker. Go to the episode and write your comment in the conversation section underneath the episode. With that said, many of the conversations we have on this podcast can really go on for so much longer than each episode is. So I really do welcome your input to continue these conversations that are so desperately needed. Um, and today's conversation is definitely one of those. My guest today is Dr. Eva Lathrop, Global Medical Director for Population Services International, or PSI, a nonprofit global health organization. PSI operates in over 50 countries worldwide with programs in sexual and reproductive health, malaria, water and sanitation, HIV, and non-communicable diseases. Eva oversees a service delivery portfolio that spans over 30 countries and focuses on sexual and reproductive health, legal abortion and post-abortion care, and cervical cancer work. She also works to evolve PSI's quality approach within primary health care. Eva's experience prior to joining PSI spans 20 years of experience in clinical care, teaching, research, and practice in global reproductive health. Her clinical and research interests include increasing access to contraception, legal abortion, and post-abortion care in low-resource settings restricted settings, and in the context of complex emergencies. Most recently, Eva served as an associate professor of gynecology and obstetrics um, and global health at Emory University's School of Medicine and Public Health. Eva credits her years as a Peace Corps volunteer in Malawi in the early 90s as her inspiration for pursuing a career in medicine and public health. In my conversation with Dr. Eva Lathrop, we focus on the status of access to abortion services in the U.S., in the United States, and the pushback on reproductive freedom that she has witnessed as a physician in the U.S. this past year. Eva shares personal stories, her sources for hope, insights into what's happening in the U.S., and real advice for changemakers everywhere. I am so incredibly glad to invite you to listen and be strengthened by this conversation.
Eva, thank you so much for joining me today on the Hey Changemaker podcast. It's a pleasure having you here. It is so good to finally be here. Thanks for having me. So I usually ask this to all of all of my guests, and I would love for you to share a story of when you knew that you wanted to be a change maker, when you knew that you had to do something more with, with your career or with your life um, to create a positive change for others. I love that question, and I can't wait to listen to some of the other change maker podcasts. You know, I, I'll give you a little background first. I grew up in a home where abortion was normalized in the sense that we didn't talk about abortion a lot, but I knew that abortion was um, something important and something that was okay. My mother is also a physician and she was in medical school during the time of Roe v. Wade in the United States and when that was passed in the 70s. And it was clear to me that that was critically important to her and her colleagues. She was one of few women in her medical school class. And so she was an important role model for me when I decided to go into OBGYN as a career in obstetrics and gynecology. It was at a time and in a place in the United States where abortion was just a normal part of our training. It was something that you learned to do as an OBGYN. It was part of complex and comprehensive reproductive health care. So it really wasn't until I moved to a different part of the U.S. that was more restricted um, that I started to understand that things were different regionally and that there were a lot of restrictions in most of the state that I was working in um, and that that was eye-opening for me. Um, And I started to see how abortion was restricted through gestational age limits and through strict consent laws and waiting periods and, um, you know, sort of logistics infrastructure pieces. And I, and I understood that we were on borrowed time and that soon things would be chipped away in 2012 um, in Georgia, where I live and work, our state legislature passed the first gestational age limits law. And this was um, 20 weeks post fertilization. And that was a big blow. Um, So I became part of a consortium of partners who sued the state. And I think that was sort of my change maker moment when I realized I had such clarity that I wanted to be a part of this lawsuit against the state to keep this from going into effect, to limit access to abortion based on no science and no evidence, Mm. uh, and to limit women's reproductive freedom um, when it's already so limited. So I had a, I had a great clarity with my colleagues that I was a one of the right people to be on this lawsuit as an abortion provider, um, as a woman, as a person with a family, as a person who's had a pregnancy mm. um, and had to make my own decisions about that. And um, I I felt strongly about having that be part of my work. Um, we were able to get five years of a stay on that law and I and I we have and, and eventually lost but I think about the five years of being able to ca- take care of women who needed abortions after 20 weeks mm. who whose each individual story is so profound um, and we had great impact on her and her families in that period of time I obviously things have changed dramatically and for the worst since then and now we're at a in, in essence a almost a total ban at six weeks uh, but I was proud of that and proud to continue to fight on the six-week ban or the fetal heartbeat ban that we have now in the state that's extraordinarily restrictive um, 
and and I do it for because I believe in it. I do it because I I know that morally and scientifically and medically it's the right thing. I know that restricting reproductive freedom never ends well, and I've seen how that goes around the world, and certainly don't want that to happen here. Um, I do it for the next generation, certainly for my girls who have said to me, if we need abortions, will you be able to help us access them? And that's not something I ever thought that they would say with fear and doubt. So um, it's been, yeah, that's, that's, I guess that's my, Mm. was a change maker perhaps. Thank you so much for, for sharing that and, um, and your sort of journey and your in the midst of it now, I mean, the the world is watching um, the U.S. and and of course that is what's happening there is of course affecting the world. Um, so a year ago, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, can you share a little bit about this? How the status for abortion access and abortion rights has changed in the U.S. since then? What does what does that actually mean for? Um, for accessing abortion. Yeah, I mean, the moment that happened was so profound. I think, you know, we knew it was coming because we had this leak in the Supreme Court, but, and and it may sound naive to say it was so fast. I think others would say it's been in the works for decades, but I just did not think it would happen. And it did. And I remember I was not in the United States. I was with colleagues um, in Sub-Saharan Africa and who were just Lord, that something like this could happen in the United States and really looked at me with both profound sadness and fear about what this means globally. Um, um, what does it mean in the U.S.? I mean, it's it's changed everything over the course of the year, almost a year now. I mean, in some places, abortion, like where I'm living in Georgia, is extraordinarily limited now. It's mm. still available in most states in some fashion. In some states, it's um, the same as it was before the overturning of Roe v. Wade. In some of those states, it's even easier to access abortion because um, places have recognized that they're going to have to serve people from around the country and around their regions if they are a sort of a safe state for abortion. Um, yeah. But what that means is people who live in restricted states will access will be completely dependent on access to resources. And so there are even more disparities in abortion access now. One has resources and needs to travel from Texas to California. Someone can do that. If you don't have resources, you can't. And so access is, is just, it's, it was, there were disparities in access before abortion is usually a service that's paid for out of pocket in most States. So certainly there were already barriers, but now with travel potential, potential restrictions on whether or not you can travel to go out of the state, especially if somebody's a minor, that's a, a law now in some states. Um, so it's it's complex, it's jumbled, it's unclear in a lot of places. Of course, we had um, his unclear rulings about Mifepristone potential and stay on those laws, but that has thrown everything um, into disarray. I think one of the things I always think about being a person who now works in global health, including domestically, is thinking about all the lessons we have learned over the decades from countries that have continued to find ways to provide access to safe abortion under strong restrictions and how to apply those to the United States. I think learnings have often been unidirectional from the U.S. to other places because we have had relatively high access to safe abortion and fewer restrictions. And now, you know, I think there's a lot of humility in recognizing we have so much to learn about how to work 
in the gray spaces, in these nuanced openings, how to see small opportunities to continue to provide safe access to abortion in a way that keeps people safe. Um, and that follows you know, legal access to the extent that we can. So it's it's a it is a complicated time. I can go on and on. Yeah. About no, and it. and I would love for you to just speak a bit about sort of that that discrimination or the disparities that do exist for women. Um, I know that you know when it comes to maternal health, that is also an issue within the U.S. And um, I, I read a study a, f a few years back where um, you know the disparities within New York City or the the state of New York was also just like black women uh, had you know so much worse access to maternal health and health services and their outcomes were tremendously worse than than that of of white women um so can you speak a little bit about those those disparities that that exist um in terms of accessing abortion as well um and how they they are increased now um as well yeah it's uh, i mean i can speak about maternal mortality as a whole and then we can talk about abortion i think you know, it has become um, so public, which I think is a good thing, that the maternal mortality ratio in the United States is higher than any other high-income country by a substantial amount. I mean, it's just, it is just appalling that that is the state of maternal care and obstetric care in the United States. Um, when we look at causes um, of complex medical disorders, people not having access to care, race, as you pointed out, the disparities in who is dying from obstetric-related deaths in the United States, it's much more likely to be Black women and Hispanic women than it is to be white women. And that's regardless of resources. Um, yeah. That's regardless of other socioeconomic indicators. And so it is, it is, um, it is racism that's causing these disparities more than race itself. Um, but what racism is sort of the 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 limited access based on systemic racism in the United States um, to insurance coverage, to access to hospitals, to um, access to safe and, and high quality obstetric care. So it's a, the, the only potential positive is that this is getting a lot of spotlight now. And I think there's a lot of federal movements um, towards, towards understanding this more and funding ways to decrease this. Uh, as far as abortion, when we look at causes of maternal death in the United States, abortion is a teensy weensy factor there, but those numbers are pre-overturning Roe v. Wade. Mm. Um, access to medication abortion or self-managed abortion now is much different than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago with the advent of safe mifepristone and mesoprostol medication. And so I think abortion outside of the bounds of working with a provider or outside of the sort of legal limits is safer than it used to be. So um, I don't think we're going to see anything like we had before Roe v. Wade in terms of maternal death related to abortion and unsafe abortion. But but I don't know that for sure. You know, I, I don't, I, I'm hoping that is the case, but I think we have to, as a health system, prepare ourselves for taking care of women who may be experiencing post-abortion complications, may be experiencing miscarriage complications in a way that we haven't had to do before. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not sure that we're ready for that. I mean, when we look at states that are really restricted right now, 
it's very unclear to providers, physicians, nurses across obstetrics and gynecology, emergency room, family practice people, how to take care of women who are having abortions or need abortions because the laws that restrict abortions are so unclear. They're not written by people who understand science and medicine. So we have seen data. I think there was a study very recently published or a report very recently published by the University um, of California, San Francisco and and, um, other groups demonstrating how people have experienced life-threatening complications that physicians have not felt they've been able to care for because it's unclear. Um, If somebody is experiencing a miscarriage, but there's still a heartbeat, having to let that become a near-death experience before being able to care for somebody. If somebody is in the early um, second trimester and has the unfortunate experience of rupturing membranes, and that's really not a pregnancy that can progress healthy and safely and will end in a live birth. But having to wait until that person is experiencing sepsis or there's no heart to be able to care for them, it's dire. And there have been complications from these delays in care and lack of care because of lack of clarity that is just daunting and and frightening. And I think to say that the onus is on the care or the physician to make those decisions and put their own livelihood, license, life at risk to save a woman. It's what we're all trained to do and it's what we all want to do, but it's so unclear. that's yeah. what we can't perspective. So it's, it's, it's really worrisome. And we need to collect good data over the course of the next years um, while we're going through this, this incredibly devastating time. Mm. So what are the risks that physicians um, and doctors are sort of facing? Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about sort of the the, yeah, the risks that they're taking and, and what would actually happen if they um, were seen to be performing an abortion, even though if it's life-saving care, um, what, what would happen? I think it's, that's one of the difficulties. It's really unclear the way the laws are written, and it depends on the state. In some states, um, anybody who is supporting access to abortion, be that a neighbor or a friend or a physician, anyone who's performing an abortion, anyone who undergoes an abortion, all the state laws are different. Um, Some of those are felony charges. Some of those are um, lose your license. Some of those are enormous fines. And there there are often very vague exceptions for when you can push that to the side, but they're written in a way, for example, um, imminent death. It's just hard to know as a physician what imminent is. Does that mean in an hour, tomorrow, in a week? Does that mean that death is a potential? Mm. Um, Does that mean that when I know that something bad could happen if I don't do anything now, but it might not show up for a couple of weeks, do I have to sit on my hands and wait, which is what some physicians are deciding to do in places where the charges would be profound and they'd be incarcerated? Um, Again, these aren't written clearly. And so when... And it's not been tested. I think that's the thing that we're going to start to see, that some of these limits will be tested, but who's going to be the test case to find out what would actually happen? A lot of the legislatures are saying, no, 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 we didn't mean that to be, um, that you shouldn't do what you think is right. But that's completely anathema to the way the laws are written. And so it's a it's a catch-22 for physicians who have an oath to do no harm. Mm. Um, that's what what guides most of us, but it's at, it's at our peril. Yeah. Um, and- peril of the women and families that we're serving. So Mm. 
I think we, you know, we're going to need to collect the data to answer your question more clearly over the course of the year or two, where we will probably have some test cases to see what will actually happen when these laws are tested. But that's a huge gamble. Yeah. For, for, As someone who's not American and, and watching what's happening in the U.S., I mean, we're also seeing sort of the don't say gay um, thing in Florida, you know, um, uh, banning books in different states and, uh, you know, literature and education, sex, sex education and things like that. And with this abortion ban, a lot of people are also seeing what's what's now also with the abortion pill that is is being um, questioned. Um, a lot of activists and, and experts are saying that contraception could be next. Um, so can you speak a little bit about that? If if you see that that is, is there, there is a potential risk to accessing contraception or if there already is. I mean, I think, again, I, I in a strange way, I was caught off guard when Roe v. Wade was actually overturned. I, and, I, and it sounds so naive to say it now. Of course, it was going to happen. Of course, that was the plan. So I won't be as naive again to say that could never happen with contraception. You just don't know. I, I weren't from the States, but even getting emergency contraception approved was such a big deal. It's not an abortifacient. No. Um, in some places, people will not uh, work with some other contraceptives, take IUDs, for example, because there's an assumption that these will interrupt an implanted pregnancy, which is not the case. So there's a lot of um, narrative already that I could see being the basis for some um, cases to try and overturn access or limit access to some contraceptives. Um, mm -hmm. And I won't, you know, say, oh, no, that could never happen here. I certainly won't say that again. It absolutely could happen here. I never thought that books would be banned to the extent that they are now in the United States. But I, I think, but I think the thing that gives me hope is that this is not what the majority of Americans want. This is not what the majority of mm. Americans believe in. The majority of Americans want access to um, bodily autonomy, reproductive freedom, access to abortion, access to safe obstetric care, certainly access to contraception and trans care and trans health and books and libraries um, and Disney World. And mm. so I think I do have faith in the American people that this, when we have the opportunities to vote, that is where we'll be able to make change. I mean, we've seen some movements protecting abortion access at the state level in several states that have been surprising, actually, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, Kansas. Those are, those are places where it could have gone the other way and gone to six-week bans. And instead, we have um, those have held, whether it's been vetoes or the legislature voting. And so if we see lawsuits that are about restricting access to contraception, then we will have the same opportunity as voters who vote in people who are making laws to not allow that to happen. Um, but again, I, I'm bracing myself. And I think um, what I've seen with all the abortion restrictions is that not everywhere, but I think in the long run, science and evidence will prevail. And there's so much good science. There's so many good studies looking at what people want, what women want, what is safe. 
why abortion is a normal part of healthcare, why it's a necessary part of healthcare, why it's a right, what happens when you take it away to women and families, why it's not better for Americans or others to not be able to access abortion. Eventually, the science is what will drive us. I think we are a nation that's committed to evidence-based healthcare. It's just such a slog right now. And <clears throat> for some reason, we're having to live through this time of a real low um, in evidence-based policies. And, and hopefully that will, will eventually change. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think as we're watching the U.S., I think that also uh, some some things that I've heard is just how local some decisions are being made and how, you know, activists are are really going into local politics and how that can actually make a difference to support reproductive rights and, and freedoms, even at a very local level. Um, so can you share or talk a little bit about how, what is being done to support reproductive rights in the US? Um, and perhaps maybe you have a, a few examples to share. And I think that's right. I think one of the things we've learned in the really since 16, when our politics dramatically changed, that change happens at local grassroots levels. Yeah. Change happens with grassroots movements that lead to voting in local candidates <clears throat> who have not even a progressive agenda, an agenda to allow Americans to exercise their freedoms um, that were in our constitution. And that includes reproductive rights and rights to bodily autonomy and privacy. Um, and that's where the biggest change is made. And I think that's actually where the fastest change is made. We're a big nation with 50 states, with 50 different ways of governing. And each one of those states has local counties or cities that have their own laws. And, and um, I think that's that's the way to get involved. But I've been so inspired by people who have really set aside <clears throat> careers to, to make a pivot, especially women, to exercise their voice and go into politics at a local level. I think we sometimes think that's not worth it. Nobody votes in local elections. We've learned that you better vote in local elections. That's where change is made. We look at what just happened in Wisconsin. That was a state a state um, voting around their Supreme Court and putting someone in their court who's very progressive and will be able to protect abortion. But that started as a local movement. Um, a lot of grassroots advocacy got voters out for a local election off cycle. And that's what's going to protect rights in the end. <clears throat> so I think we need to invest financially in local elections. We need to invest financially um, in candidates and invest our time um, and, and media in those, those change makers. Yeah. Yeah, we had, um, I had the opportunity to speak to Amanda Littman, who started Run for Something uh, on the podcast. Um, so she definitely shared sort of the impact that those local elections um, at, at the very local level can have. I also had uh, Neil Datta on the podcast um, from the European uh, Parliamentary Forum on Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights. And um, we're seeing sort of how the U.S. has changed things through the legal systems and how, um, you know, lobbyists and others in, in other parts of the world are trying to do the similar things um, to dismantle reproductive freedoms in Europe, for example. Um, 
So we have a lot to learn so that things don't happen um, in the same way um, uh, in, in our countries um, and just really being, um, being vigilant when sort of movements are, are shifting and changing. Can you talk a little bit about more about how um, the shifts now in the U.S. has affected uh, abortion access in other parts of the world? Um, I know, uh, like for a long time with the global gag rule, um, you know, funding was really restricted to many organizations working with abortion. Um, what does that look like today? Yeah, <clears throat> I think. Like I said, when I, I wasn't in the States when Roe v. Wade was overturned, and I was with colleagues in Sub-Saharan Africa from several different countries who just looked at me and said, we just never thought this would happen in the United States. We have always looked at the United States to be our guide around abortion and to, and to use as evidence <clears throat> for abortion being safe, an important part of healthcare, a normal part of healthcare, um, part of a strategy to reduce maternal morbidity and mortality, et cetera. And now what do we do? And so I think that one of the things, per, to me, it's profound, the loss people feel of our partnership. Yeah. Loss of the U.S. as a partner in this movement and that loss of sort of faith and trust in us as a country around um our commitment to protecting abortion rights. If we can't do it at home, how can we still say that we will do it elsewhere? Yeah. And so I think that's been really painful for everybody. Um, the second thing that's happened is abortion funding globally has gone way down. Mm. It's very, very difficult to procure funding to continue to work in safe abortion access globally, including domestically. Um, and part of that is because some of that was government funding with the rise of what I'll say is authoritarian governments, or at least leaning in that direction has caused to decrease in government supporting abortion as part of their foreign assistance funds or, or global health funds. Um, that's, that's been extremely difficult for anybody, whether it's international NGOs, local NGOs, local partners. But I think there's also, again, if, if there has to be a silver lining, it is that I think some countries are also saying, okay, this is a wake-up call. We're going to need to generate our own evidence or really compile the evidence that we've been generating over the years and figure out how to harness these learnings, not rely on these other funds to the extent that people had them before, um, and really start supporting these restricted nations now with the lessons that we have. So um, but I'm grasping at straws to find a positive, but I think that there are some. The other thing I'm seeing um, is in terms of the global gag rule, I think there's a lot of, there's a lack of clarity. There always is about it and it's, you know, rescinded at the moment, but um, what does this mean to this apply to our, our global work and it shouldn't but again that's not been clear for everybody but like I said earlier I think we we all have to say okay what are we going to do as a globe how are we going to work more um, in a bilateral fashion to generate evidence around safety and importance and maternal mortality reduction and and share those learnings I was just um, in a conversation last week around how 
countries who've been really successful over the past five years to um, at the midterm of the sustainable development goals, surpassing their goals around maternal mortality reduction. And how have they done that? What are some of those themes for those countries that have moved really quickly? And one of them is access to safe abortion. One of the top five themes for how countries have really had dramatic reductions in maternal mortality is consistent access to safe Mm. abortion and contraception. And I think I knew that it should be that, but it's not always called out in such a profound way. Um, And so if we want to get there as a globe, including in the United States, to say we're committed to getting to maternal mortality levels that are almost undetectable globally, in, you know, and it's just abhorrent that we would have any detectable levels in such a high-income country, then we need to have access to safe abortion and contraception. Not just those. We need to have strong health systems. We need to have policies that, that support um, safe access to all care across the reproductive spectrum. But we have got to have access to safe abortion and contraception if we want to make that change. And so I think having that message out there globally will give change makers in their own countries um, leverage to say, you know, we can't make this commitment to maternal mortality reduction out of one side of our mouth and restrict abortion out of the other. They're completely in tension with each other. And so that I hope will be helpful. That's a new report. Um, And you're working with Population Services International and um, an organization that is helping to secure access to these life-saving services and products. Um, Can you share a little bit about how PSI is doing that um, across the world? Yeah, PSI is an incredible organization, and I joined PSI about four years ago. And one of the main reasons I decided to become a part of PSI as the medical director is because of the commitment to working to improve access to high-quality, safe abortion across the globe. We don't work in the United States, but we certainly consider the United States as part of global health. And what specifically we do in that space changes over time, and it certainly changed over the last four years, and it will continue to evolve. What, What won't evolve is our commitment to staying engaged in this space. Um, but as funding has changed, as law, laws have changed, um, as we've been undergoing our own restrictions in the states, our role has changed. But really, you know, over the last two decades, restrictions in abortion have lessened everywhere, at most places, but the United States, not everywhere. And so there's still a lot of room to be supportive and to look at different contexts and think about how can safe abortion be maximized in terms of access for people who are seeking abortion in this place. Um, So PSI has worked in direct service delivery around abortion. We've worked um, in helping countries secure safe and legally registered products. There's a lot of products that aren't safe or legally registered, and certainly we're committed to getting those out there around for medication abortion that are. So sometimes we're working in distribution of product and sometimes we're working in supporting other um, strategies for safe abortion, like supporting self-care policies at national levels that include access to self-managed abortion or working with um, civil society organizations around abortion stigma as a real barrier to accessing care, even in a place where abortion is less restricted and, and to some extent accessible. What is the role of stigma? And how do we decrease stigma through storytelling? That's been really powerful work. Um, What is the role of a doula or somebody accompanying 
a person who's seeking abortion or who's self-managing? And could that be a strategy to make um, self-managing of abortion more accessible or palatable or less scary to someone who hasn't done that before? So there are so many areas that need support around abortion work globally and safe abortion that aren't just about um, being the abortion provider. Um, that's also really important. Um, generating the evidence around safety, around safety of self-management, around safety of accessing medication abortion without prescription um, from a from a drug shop, um, as long as the product is um, legally registered and safe. Um, evidence around women knowing what's best for them being able to make decisions that are best for them and manage their own care as long as they have a connection to the health system in the event of the need for that. So I think there, are, and we're trying to contribute to all of those places. But the other thing we've learned, of course, over the years, and maybe more so in the last year, is that we have to do this as a consortium. There's no point in, in those of us working in global safe abortion access to compete. We have to work together as a consortium, um, fundraise together, design together um, with um, people that we're working with. And so that, I think that's going to be the most effective and efficient way for us to go forward as an organization that's certainly at the at the top of our strategy. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to to check out PSI's approach because it's very, I mean, it, it includes and involves so much creativity and just um, working across sectors and including entrepreneurship. And I mean, there are many different um, aspects to it. So um, it's definitely something that we could talk about a lot more. Um, but I would love to um, just go back to you as, as an individual and ask you what brings you hope um, you said that it's difficult sometimes to see something positive but I would love to if you could just you know if there's something that brings you hope because if if you didn't have hope I don't think you would be continuing to do this work um, so what how do you find hope um, when the U.S. is taking so many steps back um, for SRHR the day that Georgia the state that I work in, which was just a couple weeks after the Roe v. Wade decision, maybe a month after the Roe v. Wade decision, also went down to, six, in essence, six weeks gestational age or fetal detection of a fetal heartbeat on ultrasound. Mm. That law was announced and it was effective immediately. So what that meant was that people who were in an abortion clinic at that moment, who hadn't started their care, were sent home. And it was, it was, um, it was so heartbreaking to watch that happen as a as an abortion provider, as a doctor, as a neighbor, as a friend for people who'd finally been able to access abortion, which is not easy to access. Have somebody say to the waiting room, everybody who hasn't already started has to go home. And that day, I didn't have a lot of hope. I think since then, um, there are so many people who are smart, committed, passionate, have such great clarity around what is right morally, um, what is right medically, scientifically, um, politically, to continue to work in this space and to chip away at these restrictions to come back to a place where people have the right to make their own decisions about what to do with their bodies. And so, um, 
you know, those are people across the age groups, but I, I still get to work with medical students, residents, fellows, undergrads, graduate students in public health. And I see this next generation who is so committed to not accepting this as the way for them to go through life. I went through reproductive years with full access to abortion. They're not experiencing that, <clears throat> but they're committed to making sure that that doesn't stay the course. I have two daughters who have said to me, as I said earlier on the podcast, what does this mean for us and our friends? We live in Georgia. What do we do if we need an abortion? Will you be able to help us access an abortion? And just hearing that from them with fear gave me energy, certainly commitment to say that can't be how they live out their reproductive years. Uh, and we have to um, make change for them and also for girls who don't have the access to the resources that they have. Um, <clears throat> and that they were asking the questions honestly gave me hope. These are people who are thinking about themselves, yeah. their friends and their communities at young ages about what this means for them um, and how they're looking at us to be mentors and leaders in this space and, and what their commitments can be and what their contributions can be um, at an early an, an age that I never even thought about abortion. So I'm hopeful. I don't think we're going to stay here. I think we'll go back to a place where we have full access to reproductive freedom, but it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of commitment. Um, um, but it, it is um, what we're doing now is un-American and I don't think Americans will settle for it. So um, we'll get back to where we need to be and even a better place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you really do have a connection to the urgency, both in, in your own family, but also, you know, that community of, of intergenerational leaders that uh, that can continue to inspire you. Um, so when things are really difficult and, and tough, how do you find, how do you take care of yourself? How do you, do you have any, any self-care practices that can fuel you through, you know, taking on this tremendous challenge um, of, of, reproductive freedom, access to reproductive freedoms in the U.S. I don't know if this is self-care, but one of the things I do to center myself around this commitment, if I'm ever wavering and, you know, you can get almost lightheaded with the challenge, is to remember some of the stories that have stuck with me over time and the people I've been able to care for, whether the, their stories were harrowing or they were stories of gratitude. Um, and being so glad to have had the privilege to hear those stories and be a part of those stories and, and helping people have life-changing experiences is something I'm incredibly grateful for. So I think I center myself around the gratitude to being able to be an abortion provider, be an abortion advocate, um, and not ever taking that for granted. So I think um, that's how I do it. And if all else fails, take a walk. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. Lastly, if you had one piece of advice for others who are working with safeguarding access to abortion or reproductive freedom um, in very politically polarized countries, um, what piece of advice um, after this year that has been really turbulent for you? Um, yeah, what piece of advice would you share with them? 
keep going. You are amongst many. You know, you are amongst many amazing people globally. You might not feel it all the time. You might feel alone. It can be a lonely road. Find someone who can be your person um, in this journey. There are lots of us. And those may be virtual connections. But it's those moments of doubt and um, sort of loneliness in the journey or um, even concern for personal safety where you where you sort of sit with yourself and say, what's my place in this movement? Um, what's my role on this planet? And how can I make contributions? And if you find yourself saying this is it, keep going. Um, you're not alone. And find one of us so we can connect. Dr. Eva Lethrop, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your stories, your personal experiences, and the wisdom that you have for other change makers around the world. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hate Changemaker podcast. You can learn more about PSI at psi.org and follow them via the links in the show notes. PSI is also a new publishing member on Girls Globe, and I welcome you to read their stories on girlsglobe.org as well. As I mentioned, there are a few podcasts that touch upon a few things that we spoke about today. So I recommend that you have listened to my conversations with Amanda Littman in episode 5 and Neil Datta in episode 16, if you want to learn more. I am so very, very grateful that you're here listening to this conversation on your own path as a change maker in this world. I appreciate you more than you know. Until next week, take care, change maker.